We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Following the death of former Soviet Union leader Mikhail Gorbachev this week, we're playing back an archive discussion from 2019. Three leading scholars are with us for today's show to reflect on the fall of communism and the seismic events that followed, all on the watch of a giant of 20th century politics, Mikhail Gorbachev. Our host today is Brian Klass, Associate Professor in Global Politics at University College London and author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. In 2019, Brian was joined by Ivan Krastev, opinion writer for The New York Times, chair of the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia and author of the acclaimed book After Europe, and Timothy Garton-Ash, professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford and author of numerous books, including Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected World. Let's join Brian now. I'm here with Yvonne Krastev and Timothy Garten-Nash. All right, so let's get started. We've got an anniversary coming up shortly with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I'm curious, I mean, both of you have deep experience in this region. You, you've spent a lot of time in that period in, in, in these various countries that we're going to be talking about today. What is something that when you were there, you believed to be absolutely certain? And now you've had to rethink with the benefit of hindsight. And we'll start with you, Yvonne, if you could start. First, just to say that the book, Light That Failed, is co-authors with Stephen Holmes, an American colleague of mine. But and also, I'm going to be very kind of honest on this. I don't know exactly what I believe in 1989, because part of the problem of the moment when you were there was that everything was changing very fast. Bulgaria was not Poland. So basically, we had the feeling that the communist system is on each way out, but I didn't have an idea that it's going to happen tomorrow. For example, if you're going to ask me in 1989, did I believe the Soviet Union was going to collapse in two years? 
I don't believe that this was the case. But the, for me, the most important thing that I remember from 1989 is that things that looks to you absolutely unthinkable on Monday, on Friday is obvious. And this kind of a change is does not allowing. After that, you start to reflect and so on. And I do believe that, like everybody, I was reflecting about many things, and I'm going to see what then probably I think I believed, which turned to be wrong. But I'm going to be an honest if I said that I remember exactly what I believed in 1989. It was so, so fast. But what I believed wrongly with many people was that I was seeing the change very much as the change of the East. So the East is going to change. And I was not putting any more thought how the change of the East is going to change the West. Because it was very much about us changing. And the assumption was that this is changing, but probably the West is going to remain the same. How about you, Timothy? So first of all, to say that the Magic Lantern has just been reissued in a new edition and has a big new chapter about what's happened over the last 30 years, which is why I've been revisiting the experience. And to be honest with you, the thing about 1989 was that it destroyed all the certainties that one had had. Because if you'd lived behind the Iron Curtain as I had and travelled behind the Iron Curtain, the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall was a fact of physical geography. It was something like the Alps or the Rocky Mountains. So that moment when the wall comes down is like the Alps collapsing before your eyes. And at that moment, we were wise because, as Ivan rightly says, we knew that we didn't know. And the mistake comes, in my view, a bit later when we forgot that we didn't know what was going to happen next. And because things went so well, particularly in Central Europe, beyond our wildest dreams and German unification, which I thought was almost impossible, we began to believe that this triumph of liberal democracy is the new normal, the way things are going to be, the direction history is traveling. And that was our big mistake, which in my view is a phenomenon more of the 2000s than of the 1990s, because in the early 1990s we were totally uncertain. If you look at the last page of the original version of Magic Lantern, I say... This may all go pear-shaped again. Eastern Europe may go back to its bad old ways of nationalism and xenophobia and inter-ethnic hatred. So I think it's in the 1990s when we get this peculiar belief that, as someone well put it, I think Ivan quotes it in the book, the most non-linear event in modern European history, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, leads us to a linear view of history. And therefore, in Iraq, if you topple the dictator, it'll be easy to build a dictatorship, just like they did in Poland or Hungary. And the Arab Spring must be another 1989. That, I think, was a mistake. Just to, uh, because I just want to confirm uh, uh, what Tim was saying. If you go back to the titles of the book that have been published in 1991, 1992, 1993, they were not triumphalist titles. It was big out of all people. He had a book called Out of Control. Can't draw it, The New World Disorder. So from this point of view, exactly, it was the reinterpretation, and particularly the 10th anniversary of the 1989, that created this story that what could be considered luck, we saw it as the historical law. Exactly so. And this is why my good friend and Stanford colleague, Francis Fukuyama, has had a raw deal. 
because every bar philosopher says, what do you mean the end of history? It wasn't the end of history. Fukuyama was right in saying that at that moment there was not any more transculturally, transnationally appealing global ideology in the way that communism, liberal democracy and fascism had competed across all whole continents for most of the 20th century. And we sort of knew that. We knew that we were in, on virgin territory and we thought it might all go badly wrong. And I, I think both Ivan and I are saying that it's in the early 2000s that our old Greek friend, you know, hubris, really sets in. I want to come back to the end of history in a second. But before we get there, I'm just curious, where were you when the Berlin Wall fell? Well, take us back to 1989 and how you found out about it. I was in Oxford, to my great regret. I flew to Berlin the next day, having lived in East Berlin, having whole old passports full of stamps from Checkpoint Charlie. I mean, I can't lost count of the number of times I crossed. I just took a childish delight in going to and fro, to and fro across the wall. And of course, because I'd lived in East Germany, I got what most people in the West miss, which is this was liberation for the East Germans. So all the pictures of the fall of the wall show it covered in graffiti. That's looking at the wall from the wrong side. That's looking at it from the side of the people who were free, the West Germans. The way you have to look at it is the grey side, the far side. So I was able to feel that sense of, of liberation, which is, which is the true miracle of, of the fall of the wall. I was in Sofia. I was the last year student of philosophy in Sofia University. And paradoxically for us, the fall of the Berlin Wall is a lost event. Because the next day, Bulgarian communist leader... Todor Zhivkov resigned after 40 years in power. And this is one of the interesting effects of 1989. Well, most of us, for us, 1989 means return of politics in your own community and you start to be totally interested in everything that is happening in Bulgaria. The 1989 as an international event was much easier to be seen from the West than from the East. And even some of the... It's not by accident that basically... It was Tim Gartanesh who told the story of the 1989 as an international event happening at the same time in Budapest, in Warsaw and others, because you are so much emerging in what is happening in your country. It's so new. It is so unexpected. You're so much kind of bothered by every single small detail that you see. So for us, the Berlin Wall basically fall and the thing that it did, it put uh, Zhivkov uh, <laughs> under it. Which the world was rather slow to notice. Yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> and this is also the Bulgarian story because, of course, if you have the Berlin Wall collapsing. But this is interesting because also we believe that now that the fall of the Berlin Wall was perceived in its historical significance by everybody. But many years later, I was rereading the transcript of the first meeting of the Soviet Politburo after the fall of the Berlin Wall, because I was trying to see how they're going to basically interpret and comment on what happened. And on this meeting, the major topic was the agrarian reform in the Soviet Union, and the fall of the Berlin Wall was in various. Yes, which illustrates an interesting point, which I would argue that Eastern Europe in 1989 was the beneficiary of its own illusions in 1968. That is to say that Gorbachev fundamentally believed that you could have socialism with a human face. You could have a halfway house, which was democratic communism. And so from this point of view, if you're thinking of, 
you know, having, as it were, democratic communist or democratic socialist regimes, it's not this titanic event. The East German demonstrators knew a bit better than Gorbachev. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the you know the way that 1989 looks in hindsight from this what you've raised before the end of history from Francis Fukuyama. So for those of you who are not familiar, Francis Fukuyama argued that there were grand ideological struggles in the 20th century, first between liberal democracy and fascism, and then between liberal democracy and communism, and that in this essay he wrote in 1989, a couple months before the Berlin Wall fell, that liberal democracy had won. Uh, the end of history does not say that history will not happen, events will not happen, but that there will be – there's no grand, grand ideological struggle and now liberal democracy is the paradigm with which people will set up their societies. Now, you had said before that he gets a bit of a raw deal, which I agree with by the way. But do you think – I mean to put it in sort of you know, simplistic terms, do you think that he was wrong or do you think that he was just wrong about how quickly this might happen? In other words, are we still marching to the drum of liberal democracy or is it likely that we're going to have an emergence of an, a genuine ideological counterpart to it in Eastern Europe anytime soon? Uh, we have a genuine ideological competitor in China. Today's China is as much a product of 1989 as are the fragile democracies of Central and Eastern Europe. And if your first question had been, is there one thing that you never expected would happen, my answer would be that we could have a system uh, expressed in crude shorthand that one might call Leninist capitalism, so that the Chinese communist leadership systematically learnt the lessons from the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and erected this genuinely unprecedented and novel uh, hybrid political and economic system. It's not often you get something genuinely new in history, but that's really new. And in, in my view and in my book in both, both senses, that, that is the, the great ideological competitor that we now face. And it's terribly interesting, and I think both Ivan and Stephen and I draw attention to this, that Viktor Orban, uh, the Hungarian prime minister, who is both the most authoritarian of the rulers in post-communist post Central Europe and the cleverest, he is the one who articulates this new phase of history in which he says, we used to think modernity and prosperity was associated only with liberal democracy. This is no longer the case. Look at China, look at Singapore. In other words, he says, there is an alternative modernity. I agree very much. And I want to go back to Fukuyama because it's, there is something important to put in context the moment when it appeared. And don't forget that the initial essay that was written in the spring of 1989, published in the summer, was with a question mark. Because it was an essay born out of a kind of an insight that surprised Fukuyama himself. And the interesting story about the essay and working uh, with Stephen on the book, we basically reread it several times, is that this was the, not the essay that was predicting the, eight of so the end of Soviet Union or basically the collapse, the geopolitical collapse of the Soviet camp. He made a totally different argument. The Soviet and the Chinese leaders agreed that communism has failed. So now they try to make a story out of it. They're looking for an exit. And for me, it's very interesting to see the different kind of decisions that they made what was wrong and what was good about socialism. 
Gorbachev believed that socialist ideas were still powerful, and the thing that was wrong with socialism was the monopoly of the Communist Party. So he believed exactly in 1968 idea of socialism with the human face. Chinese believed something totally different. There was something very good about communism, and it was the monopoly of the Communist Party, because they have a state that can do anything it wants. What was wrong was how this instrument was used, particularly for what kind of economic policies. So for Kuyama's idea, and this is when you're rereading the, uh, the, the, the essay, you're surprised by one thing. He's talking also very much about globalization. And if you're going to talk to Frank Fukuyama today, he's going to say globalization was the end of history that they had in mind. But everything is moving in his uh, essay. Capital is moving. Ideas are moving. Goods are moving. The only thing that is not moving were people. Because this was an essay which was before the end of the Iron Curtain. The idea was probably the borders are going to stay, probably the communist countries are going to keep their sovereignty, but ideologically they acknowledge their bankruptcy. And from this point of view, as you know, what we argue with Stephen Holmes in the book is that uh, one of the interesting stories was that the end of history was the age of imitation. So basically, he said, there is only one model worth imitating, and this is the liberal democracy. For me, also interesting is why the ex-communist elites agreed with Fukuyama, if not openly, I mean tactically. And here, paradoxically, the liberal democracy benefited from the Marxist legacy because there was such a strong Hegelian logic in this. For so many years, basically, the communist elites were trained that there is a final destination of history, that for them it was easier to agree that liberal capitalism was the final destination than to ask the question, what if there is no final destination of history? So suddenly, basically, what uh, uh, Fukuyama did, Marx is famously said that he put Hegel uh, on his feet because before Hegel was on his head. I do believe that uh, this was a kind of a judo place uh, on the side of Fukuyama using the very te te deterministic and teleological knowledge of Marxism itself in order in ideologically to defeat it. And paradoxically, I do believe, for example, President Putin, when he gave this famous interview to the Financial Times talking about liberalism, that is experiment that he failed, he decided ironically to repeat Francis Fukuyama's argument once again, trying to basically demoralize by saying it was another experiment that has failed. So, so I remember writing at the time, and I think it's in the book, in The Magic Lantern, liberalism might turn out to be the last or at least the latest Central European utopia. And, of course, a utopian liberalism is a contradiction in terms. And this is why, because I just want to take this up with, my, with, with, with Ivan. I do have a slight problem with the title of The Light That Failed yeah, because it draws a comparison to The God That Failed. The God That Failed was communism, which failed absolutely. Actually, at the very end of the book, what you say is what I believe, which is, I think you call it, a chastened liberalism, is still a political uh, ideology best suited to the 21st century precisely because it is not a monistic utopian system but is actually intrinsically experimental and open and uh, pluralistic so that, that I don't think it's the God that failed in quite that way. Um, uh, you know, liberalism, I think... Um, is that the phoenix that keeps rising from the ashes? I very much agree, because for, to be honest, we, uh, we have been thinking about this, and the idea was in Eastern Europe after 1989, many people read liberalism in the way the communism was read, as a final saying, yeah. as a kind of a natural state of the world. For example, the word experiment 
was a dirty word in the political vocabulary of Eastern Europe in the 1990s. We're not experimenting. So if something has failed, of course, it was not liberalism, but liberal hegemony. But what in my view was also quite important was that Cold War was a clash between two universalist ideology very much rooted in the European Enlightenment. And this kind of a light about the future as a project kind of disappeared because from this point of view, China, is a, it is an alternative, very powerful alternative, but very different alternative than the Soviet communism was. The universalist appeal of the Soviet communism was much stronger, much more there. Uh, Soviet communism wanted to transform the world. Chinese are going to be happy only governing it. Yes, and dominating Asia. I mean, the real challenge to us is not world revolution following Xi Jinping thought, but uh, a Chinese hegemony in Asia. Just to come back to the liberalism point, I mean, I think, I, I think there is also, as it were, a more pedestrian critique, which is that what we got in post-communist Central and Eastern Europe was a one-dimensional liberalism, that liberalism was essentially reduced to its economic dimension, which is why liberalism has become a dirty word for many people in these societies. I was sitting with a group of uh, Warsaw University students the other day in a cafe. They ranged from left to right. Some of them were extremely conservative and right-wing. Some of them were far left. The one thing they all agreed on was that they hate liberalism. But the liberalism they were talking about was one-dimensional economic neoliberalism. So I think that's also an encouraging lesson because it wasn't a genuine multidimensional liberalism which failed. It was this one-dimensional liberalism. This brings me to my, my next question, which is, you know, in, in a lot of places where we have the crisis of democracy, the crisis of liberalism and the emergence of populism, we have groups of people in those societies who are genuinely worse off than they were 30 years ago. Uh, the Rust Belt in the United States is the classic example where manufacturers had dignity and more money than they used to have, uh, more money, more money uh, in the past than they have now. In Eastern Europe, it's hard to find a slice of a lot of these societies that is legitimately worse off than it was 30 years ago in pure economic terms. So. How do, you, how do you square that with global populism and how do you square that with this grievance narrative of a group of people who are genuinely much better off than they used to be? Yeah. So this is a really interesting question um, and the answer is clearly not it's the economy, stupid. I mean there are some people in these societies who are better off than they were 30 years ago but nothing like as well off as other people who've got much richer in those 30 years. So if you're measuring yourself relatively to other people in your society, you feel worse off. And you also the peculiarity of the post-communist situation is that because of the so-called privatization of the nomenclature, the fact that in the privatization progress, process, Members of the old communist elite or people with good connections in the communist elite benefited disproportionately and have become oligarchs or very rich adds a dimension of historical injustice to the feelings, okay? So that's the economic... But much more important, in my view, is the cultural dimension, what I call the inequality of attention and respect 
which is at least as important as inequality of income and wealth. And the classic example here is the vote for the Alternative für Deutschland, the xenophobic far-right party, which in three recent provincial elections in eastern Germany, Brandenburg, Saxony, and last Sunday, Thuringia, has got a quarter of the vote, one in four people for a far-right xenophobic party. Now, it's not just that they're living in one of the richest countries in the world, which has transferred two trillion euros precisely to eastern Germany. On, in opinion surveys, four out of five AFD voters assess their own personal economic situation as good or very good. So don't tell me it's the economy, stupid. But two-thirds of AFD voters say they've been treated as second-class citizens. So I think the inequality of attention and respect from us, metropolitan, cosmopolitan, uh, liberal elites, is at least as important as any genuine economic uh, inequality. I'm very much going to agree. Uh, this is one of the things that we have been also very much arguing in the book. You're not going to understand the changes in Eastern Europe through the economy. Only, of course, economy can play. It can explain different groups. And one of the interesting effects is exactly the changing frames of comparisons. There are people, particularly older people, who believe that they were better before. And in some countries, not every country is poor and hungry. In Bulgaria, for example, of course, there is much more social pessimism. But the winners of the change also start to compare themselves, not with themselves before 1989, not with their parents, but with the colleagues of the similar professions, for example, in Germany or France, and you don't believe it works. And the second important element, which I do believe was totally underestimated, was the major movement of people that happened from east to the west. And this demographic dimension, the fact that you have an aging societies with low fertility rates in which a lot of young people has left, created the feeling that Central and Eastern Europe is not the place that you want to be. Suddenly, if in 1989 we believed that we are the capital of the world, that we were the future, suddenly you believe that you are a province in which nobody is interested. So when the young people, when the doctors are leaving, you have the idea of a loss, which cannot be measured in money, but is also measured in importance. And from this point of view, uh, it, the fact that Eastern Europe is the fastest demographically shrinking region of the world... 18 million, people have been, 18 million people have been lost in the region for the last 30 years. If this was a country, this country was going to be the third biggest East European country after Poland and Romania. So this kind of a demographic dimension, particularly for small nation states and small nations, which always feared ethnic disappearance, which are incredibly ethnically homogeneous, uh, created this sense of a loss on collective level, keeping in mind that what also Tim was saying, in Poland, more than 70% of the people said that they are satisfied with their life. So you have the idea of individual success and collective loss. Hi, everyone. It's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. Com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support.
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. So can I follow up on this? I mean, one thing that I'm struck with in both of your in your in your books is that maybe one of the lessons here for revolutions is expectations management is very important. That it seems to me that if you are comparing yourself to something that is unattainable in a short period of time, that maybe the reason why Tunisians in the Arab Spring are very upset with their lot is because they thought it, they were going to be France by 2013. How does this play out in terms of timeframes that people thought about in 1989 versus where they are today? Listen, interestingly, I was listening uh, to a talk by a historian colleague of mine who reminded us that in uh, the Bible, there are two different descriptions of paradise. One is the lion and the lamp sitting next to each other. Lying down with each other. Yeah, yeah. And the other was that last will become first. And the interesting story is that the legitimacy of the revolutions comes not what, from what people have gained, but quite often from the destruction of the old uh, kind of a privileged groups. From this point of view, 1989 was very different because it went for the first definition of heaven. <laughs> it was much more about the line and the lamp. And because 1989 was very, because also of the Soviet perestroika and many other things, the terror of the communist revolution was very much alive in the consciousness of the people. People were living all the time about what happened in the 1920s. So the nonviolent uh, nature of the revolution, the idea that basically you should integrate the old elites, that basically not that last are going to become first, but everybody is going to have the chance to become first, was very important for also the peaceful nature of the revolution. 30 years later, when the fears of violence is not there, 
where the memories of the communist terror are not there. People cannot understand this. And one of the interesting stories, which we're also quoting from somebody like uh, Legutko, one of the important figures in the Polish conservative right, was he believed that one of the worst things that happened in Poland was that the ex-communists become Democrats. Because he said, if they're Democrats, if I'm a Democrat, they're stealing my biography. And this strange story in which this was the revolution that cannot ask for justification on the base of what it was, was destroyed as a ruling class. On expectations, listen, they, this sound, you're absolutely right. But if a revolution can moderate the expectation, it is not a revolution. Because in a certain way, part of the story of a revolution as a moment is that suddenly imagination is totally dominant. For example, in Bulgaria, we believe that in five or ten years we're going to live like Germany. Uh, and people are going to say, can you be so naive? You can, because this naivete was also moving people. They go on the streets. They're doing things that otherwise they're not going to do. So paradoxically, this is the strength and the weakness of the revolutions. Revolutions don't know how to moderate expectations because the unrealistic expectations are also the ones that bring people to the streets. Except that in this case, of course, what was being promised, and this makes it unique among revolutions, was not heaven on earth. It was West Germany, yeah, exactly. right? I mean, if you went around the region, as I did, asking people, so what do you want to achieve? They would say again and again, we just want to be a normal country. And then you ask, what does it mean to be a normal country? And basically the answer was West Germany. So expectations management would absolutely be about saying, look, it's going to take us a bit longer to accumulate the wealth level of, of, of West Germany. But actually, I think there's a great question, what lessons do we learn both from the success of the revolution? So, for example, if you think about Hong Kong, I think there are clear lessons. Keep your nonviolent discipline, have strategic goals which are achievable, focus on those strategic goals, look for possibilities of defection from within the elite, make sure you get your story right with international public opinion. You know, there are a whole series of lessons. Now, if, my, if I were learning a lesson from, from this point of view, from, from, from the age of populism, I would quote something else from the Bible, which is man does not live by bread alone, right? Because I think we were much too economistic and liberal politicians were much too economistic in the approach. And if you look at what the populists are appealing to, it's as much the, the emotional need for a sense of identity and community as it's any material shortfalling. And here, just one thing on uh, defense of Frank Fukuyama. In a certain way, there was one thing in which Fukuyama was absolutely right, that the struggle for recognition, being Hegelian, is going to be critical. And the interesting story about the end of history was that the end of history was not told simply as a victory of the market economy over the plant economy. He believes that the communism failed in redistributing recognition. And he believed that democracy, because people are participating, is good and redistributing recognition. But now we understand that it's not enough to have the institutions of democracy in order to have a successful redistribution of recognition and basically respecting people in the way they want to be respected. So you need an identity politics. There has to be an identity politics of liberal democracy because otherwise you'll have the other kinds of identity politics. And I do think it's interesting that Frank Fukuyama's latest book – also starts from recognition, but is about identity politics. And the argument is not that the left or the liberal left didn't have an identity politics, but that it had the wrong sort of identity politics. 
I wanted to follow up on this idea of recognition and the sort of emotional aspect of politics in the region now, because one of the questions that you often get, I mean, you have this in Brexit, you have this with Trump, is, is this political tribalism where there's just sort of a feeling that you like something? Or is it actually a box-ticking exercise of policies where you, you believe we really want these specific things to change? So if we look at places like Pol Poland and Hungary, which are often the poster children for, for this phenomenon, is somebody like Viktor Orban tapping into emotion or is he tapping into a deep-seated programmatic politics? And why, why is he effective at doing what he does? It's, it's different. Uh, well, First of all, we are talking, especially in the Orban case, we're talking for a very gifted politician, which is extremely important. Uh, unlike many other things, you cannot imagine populist without a populist leader. And the figure of the leader is critically important. But for me, one of the major distinctions between the populist understanding of policy and the, uh, the liberal one is that for populist intensity is much more important than consistency. Uh, so Viktor Orban was reacting to two kinds of challenges when he came to power. Uh, and uh, uh, in 2006, he lost the elections that he believed that he should have won. Uh, and he basically decided that in order to govern, you should consolidate all the power. Basically, he stopped believing in uh, divisions of power. He basically said, in this globalized world, you either concentrate all power in the executive or you cannot govern, particularly for the small states. But the second thing which was very important and people are forgetting is that he came to a country which was in a very deep crisis and he had to make a very tough decision. And he made a decision which, to be honest, I do believe from this moment he was right. He decided to put the cost of the financial crisis of 2009 and 2010 uh, on the international lenders and not on the Hungarian middle class by basically fixing uh, the currency, the Swiss franc uh, and the Hungarian currency because one million Hungarians has taken loans in Swiss currency and they had, most of them was mortgages for apartments. So basically they should have repaid at the moment when the Hungarian currency was around 40% of its power against the Swiss francs, which means that they should have bankrupt. But this decision has important consequences, also a geopolitical one. Because he did what he did, he was afraid to go back to the International Monetary Fund because he believed that then he's going to be punished for this. And then he discovered the charm of Russia, the charm of China as a different source of financing. So from this point of view, even when you're doing a policy that makes sense economically, and I do believe that it made sense economically back then, this changed the nature of the regime because Viktor Orban was not born politically as somebody who likes Russia or China or uh, President Putin. This is not the case. For him, there was a series of policies that had a consequences, some of them unexpected to him, confrontation with the international business community, then confrontation with the United States. And then following this road, he ended up in 2014 to describing illiberal democracy, not as a regime that he wanted to build in 2010, but as a regime that he has built in 2014, and he should have justified what he has already built. I mean, just to follow on that, because Orban is such an interesting figure, because basically, like China, traditionally, he's interested in two things, wealth and power. So if you look at what Orban does, you can see how uh, a cynical but very clever politician in the second decade of the 21st century will pursue wealth and power. And 
since you asked about affective ideology, emotionally appealing ideology, of course, a large part of what he's appealing to is the classic appeal of the old European right, family, church, and nation. He has brought back that old trinity. He says, you decadent LGBTQIA plus uh, uh, West European societies, you solve your demographic problem by Muslim immigration, destroying your own culture. We, virile, traditional Christian societies, solve it by having lots more Hungarian children. So family, church, he claims at least to be a devout Christian and to be defending Christian Europe against the Muslim menace, and nation. So if you go now to Budapest, he is building or having built an absolutely huge monument to the uh, Hungarian territory that was lost in the Treaty of Trianon in 2020, which will be unveiled in, with immense pomp next year, 2020. So it was 4th of June, 1920. So we have three 4th of June, the Polish 4th of June, the semi-free election, the Chinese 4th of June, the Tiananmen massacre, and the Hungarian 4th of June, which is Trianon. And this will be the huge celebration. So family, church, nation, and the affective, the emotional appeal of those three together is absolutely not to be underrated. And one of the problems of pro-European liberals in Hungary is that they don't have the countering charms. Europe has lost its magical power as a, as a totem. Also what's interesting, and from this point of view, it's Orban, but it's true for Erdogan, it's true for many of them. These are people that have been socialized in sport, not in politics. Viktor Orban was not interested in politics before he went to the army. But he was always a football fan. And they managed to see the idea of the loyalty and the idea of the politics much more on the model of a fan club towards their sport uh, team than this type of a critical citizen loyalty that you basically are loyal to an idea or ideology or a party. And this transformation of the Republic of Citizens into a Republic of Fans where any type, any kind of a statement effect in fact, is a statement of identity. So anytime I'm criticizing Viktor Orban, I cannot be a good Hungarian anymore. I cannot be a kind of a part of Fidesz. Uh, this is extremely important because you see this also with President Trump, to be honest. I was When I was uh, uh, reading some of the tweets of President Trump's towards uh, the Republicans that have been dissenting on one issue or the other, I was very much reminded of the, what I have read about the beginning of the World War II when uh, in 1941 the Soviet troops were withdrawing and basically Stalin gave an order. Uh, that the Soviet troops should basically shoot uh, in the back their own soldiers who are withdrawing from the line. The Trump tweets are doing the same to the Republicans who are withdrawing from the battle line with the Democrats. The moment when you're descending, you're losing your citizenship. Yes, but just to, to take up from that, of course, the difference between football and politics is football teams either win or lose. And there is either they win 1-0 or they lose 1-0. And uh, I think what you're asking us to reflect upon 
is the politics in which you win even if you lose because you declare it a victory, right, which is the Trumpian and immensely successful Trumpian trope of, of winning if you lose. It was a fantastic victory. It was a perfect conversation. It was great. Look, look at my great triumph with Erdogan. Now we've got the leader of Islamic State. So I, I, I think, I think you're, you know, you're on to something there. Um, one of my favorite Trump remarks is, you remember he denied that Obama was born in the United States and then Obama produced his birth certificate, which you might think is end of story. Not a bit of it. Trump, you know how he, he likes to say, many people think. Well, in this case, he said something differently. He said many people feel that it wasn't a genuine birth certificate. You know, you may you may think this jacket is grey, but I feel that it's pink. And it's it's a, a classic example of of putting feeling above reason. But the, about sports, and this in my view is important. If you're a really fan of a club, you never lose fairly. This is the difference between the normal spectator and a fan. You never. Always losing is a conspiracy, either the arbiter or somebody and so on. So from this point of view, there are no fair lost. I have one, one final question to end this on, which is we've, we've talked about, we've looked back at 1989 and we've also done that unfair thing of retroactively evaluating an essay 30 years later. Let's think about the next 30 years and put you on the spot a little bit of do we think the trends that exist in Central and Eastern Europe are going to continue or do you see that there's going to be a turning point? Is this something where we are careening inevitably towards a, a very different world than the liberalism we thought would exist in the 1990s or, or are we going to see some sort of change of these current trends? I'll start with the fact that one thing that basically uh, we have been very much talking with Stephen Holmes when we were finishing the book is that what we learned is that history does not like taking sides. History is not the fan of any of the football clubs playing here and there. There is a disappointment with democracy. There is also disappointment with, uh, with liberalism. There is also disappointment with populism. And for me, there is one new kind of a phenomena that I found really important for the future of democracy, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe. And this is the emergence of different type of a homegrown liberals who discovered their liberalism in the experience of being under a populist government. So from this point of view, the newly elected president of Slovakia is a very great example because we have a liberal who does not speak English. Normally for long periods of time, basically, liberalism was perceived with people who know the West, who want to imitate the West. It was kind of a uh, liberalism was the patriotism of the English speakers. But from this point of view, you have a people who also do not like the way their countries are governed. And these people feel a political uh, uh, agency and they're doing things. So from this point of view, I don't believe that we are moving from or oh, this is the end of liberalism and this is why basically populism is going to dominate Central and Eastern Europe. I don't know. And because it's the last question, Machiavelli has also one very interesting observation. He said, you should never surrender because you don't know what the fortune has prepared for you. <laughs> so I very much agree with that. I mean, we're in danger of making the mistake we made after 1989, but in reverse. So then we thought history was going our way. Now people are beginning to talk as if history is going Xi Jinping's way and Putin's way. And that's obviously the equal and opposite mistake. We don't know which way history is going. In the region, and I write a lot about the 
new forces of people who are mobilizing the, the liberal pro-European president in Slovakia, the massive demonstrations in Prague against the corrupt oligarchic regime, you know, the tremendous opposition forces in Poland. I mean, this is not over by any means. And I very much agree with Ivan that this is not going to be, gosh, we're being good Democrats because that's the way you do it in the rich West or because we want to be part of Europe. But we have found through our own experience that we want to stand up for our constitution so that something that's happening in Poland is the emergence of a genuine constitutional patriotism. Uh, I heard a demonstration in Krakow the other um, day where the chant was triple separation of powers. What do we want? Triple separation of powers. It's an unusual demo chant. So there's a, and people walking around with T-shirts saying Constitutia, constitution. So... In the region, I am cautiously optimistic. Left to itself, and with some help from Europe, I believe the region will actually potentially be in a better place 10 years on, on the 40th anniversary. But the global context is one in which we have a global strategic challenge from China, the other product of 1989, which is I do believe we are actually at the beginning of a new Cold War between China and the United States. We have the global challenge of climate change and we have AI on top of the internet coming down the road. And I think in truth the future of, of liberalism and democracy is going to be decided not by our local regional struggles but by how we respond to those enormous challenges. All right. Well, that's us for today. I want to thank my guests, Ivan Krastev, a Bulgarian political scientist and author of a great new book, The Light That Failed, and Timothy Garten-Ash, Oxford professor and author of The Magic Lantern, which has a new edition out shortly, I believe. Is that right? Just now. Just now. Check them both out. They're excellent books. They'll give you a good perspective on both 1989 and what it means for today. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm Brian Kloss. Goodbye for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.